Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the worship uh, that has taken place here. Thank you, Lord, for hearts that have been ready to meet with you. And we ask, God, that you would um, sensitize the nerve endings of our hearts, Lord, to your word. Any numbness that is here, any wandering heart that is here, make us ready to hear from your word and to receive it. Show us the Lord Jesus. Give us faith to see him as he is, hanging on a cross and dying for us. We pray it in his name. Amen. If you took English classes like I did, I'm assuming that at some point uh, you learned the elements, the basic elements of a short story or of a story. And I looked that up this week uh, to try to see what those were. I didn't really remember them, you know, but depending on where you looked, you might see five, you might see eight, you might see ten, but I was only concerned about one element. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't misremembering something, that I was taught that in every story there is a climax. There's a climax. Things rise and eventually hit a point where all the story has been leading to this thing, this thing, the climax of the story. That's where we are right here. Everything that Mark has been writing to this point has been aimed to bring us to where we are right now. All of Jesus' miracles, all of his obedience, all of his teaching, all of his meeting opposition, all of his suffering, it has all been pointing us to a place where our Savior would come and die, where he would be buried, and then he would rise from the grave. Even Jesus has been telling us that this is where everything is leading. He told his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Everything's been coming here where we are in Mark chapter 15. What I want to do is walk through these verses that are here. I want to point out some significant things about them and to teach something of what Jesus was accomplishing that day as he hung on the tree at Calvary. So I'm going to read the verses, Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39, and we'll look at each one. We're told, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we pray that today, as we leave this place after hearing your word, that every person here would have this same confession in his or her heart, that we would all look upon Jesus with eyes of faith and confess him to be the Son of God who died for me. We ask it in his name. Amen. Look with me there at verse 33. We see that it was the sixth hour, and darkness covered the whole land until the ninth hour. That's noon until 3 p.m. This was no solar eclipse. This was no windstorm, some might say. Now, this was a supernatural darkening of the earth because of what was taking place right there. The Son of God was hanging as a curse on a tree. He was there. The Holy Son was there. Not you, not me. He was. The day of judgment has come. God will deal with the sins of the people. And the sins of the people are where? They're on him. Much of what Mark writes in all of these verses are a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Hear the words of Amos chapter 8. We're told, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Well, there that day an only son died, and the son did go down at noon. Judgment had come. Lament was happening. The son of God was laying down his life, the only son of God, and there was mourning. And so it was dark. Verse 34 And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At this point right here, Jesus has become sin. He's become sin, and he is experiencing the wrath of a holy God. The only thing that the Son of God had ever known up to this point was the joy of fellowship and the love of his father. But what's he experiencing here? He's experiencing abandonment. The presence of God that he had always known had left him. He was on that tree that day all by himself to suffer. And the absence of the love of his father was palpable. He knew it. He knew it had left him. And he quotes the first line in Psalm 22 that says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? 
Why was it that the father would turn his face away from his son? It's because in that moment, Jesus became sin. He became sin. He took on himself the sin of the world. Think about that. All the weight of sin was on him. Even the sins that you would commit 2,000 years later are on him there at the cross. He is paying the price with his blood and with his suffering right now. And he cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? The father did not look at his son in the same way in that moment. He turned his face from him because Jesus was bearing his wrath, holy wrath. He was drinking the cup for you and for me. He took what we deserved. Substitution. Substitution is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of Christianity that Jesus, the righteous one, the innocent one, the just one, the good one, that he took the place for the unrighteous, the ungodly, the sinner. The Old Testament has a number of illustrations that prefigure the coming Jesus with animals dying in the place of sinful men. It's everywhere. It's just a theme that continues on, whether it's in the, the sacrifices that took place in the temple, um, the Day of Atonement, when Adam and Eve first sinned and God killed a lamb and clothed them, this notion of an animal dying in the place of sinners is all over the place. But I want to point you to one place in particular, and it's interesting that Angel actually used this a little while ago. Every now and then something like that happens. He was talking about Abraham and the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Well, that's where I want to read to you from this morning. Didn't know he would. Abraham knew that God had made promises for the future through his son Isaac. And yet he is told to go up and sacrifice him. Abraham didn't completely understand. But you know what he did understand? That God is a God of his word. He'll keep it. If he made promises to me about my son Isaac and he's going to have to live, well, I know he's a God of miracles. He knows what he's doing. And I'm just going to trust him. Genesis 22, 9 to 14 says this. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Do you see that? You see the substitution that is taking place there? The ram is being offered up in the place of Abraham's son. 
So what did Abraham do? He called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. God provided a sacrifice in place of my son Isaac. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. As Angel mentioned, this place right here, this temple mount where this took place, is on the same mountain where God provided a sacrifice in the place of Abraham's son. God sent a substitute. And it's this same mountain where God provided another's greater sacrifice, a more important sacrifice in the place of sinners. So that we also can say, on the mount of the Lord, it was provided. God sent a substitute for us. So brothers and sisters, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ means that I believe that he is my substitute, that he took my place, that he stood condemned where I should have stood condemned, that he was willing to hang there as a criminal, as a blood offering, to have the Father forsake him so that I can say, that I am not forsaken. Jesus was forsaken so that I don't have to be. And so to understand salvation, to understand the cross, you have to understand that. And there's a couple of things, actually there's many things that are connected to that truth of substitution. I'm going to give you a couple. A couple of truths that we need to see here as we see our Savior dying on a cross for us. What was he accomplishing as he was my substitute? The first is that Jesus satisfied the justice of God. He satisfied the justice of God. And by doing that, he removed our guilt and he removed the accusations of Satan. Essential to the character of God is that he is a just God. He does everything justly. Everything is in order. Everything is paid for. The balances of the scales are always right with him. He cannot remain the holy God of Scripture and just sweep our sins under the rug. So many people have a notion of God as being like a grandfatherly pushover. He just smiles and says, you go ahead, I love you anyway. And we just won't pay any attention to that. So they think God is but he is not. He is a holy judge. And Satan's great advantage over sinners is his ability to rightly accuse us before the Lord. He can rightly bring sin before this holy judge and know that it must be paid for. So we are told that he is the accuser of the brethren. And we know that he's a father of lies, but so often he doesn't need to lie about us. He can bring all of your sins before God and make a fair accusation against you without lying about anything. Your rap sheet is lengthy. It's longer than you know. 
You deserve an eternal sentence of hell, and Satan knows it. And his delight is to bring those before the Lord and say, you know what she did. He loves to accuse us, remind us of our guilt. Satan delights in a guilty conscience. He knows that you were born into sin and that you are a criminal. He did not make you one. So he makes accusations that should stick. And it would be unjust of God to turn a blind eye to all that he could say about you and me. There's a passage in the Old Testament book of Zechariah that tells us about Satan doing this very thing to a man named Joshua. Joshua was the high priest. It said that he stood before the Lord in filthy garments. And the passage says, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Satan was standing there accusing Joshua of things I'm sure that he actually had done. He was guilty. He was filthy before the Lord. But God rebuked him. And said, bring out the clean garments. Put a clean turban on his head. Give him clean clothes. Instead of all those filthy and dirty ones. So Joshua here was standing before the Lord. He was dirty and somehow, without God telling us how he did it, he took care of Joshua's filthiness. And he removed Satan's accusations against him. How could he do that? It certainly looks in that passage like nothing is done. He simply says, I rebuke you, Satan. Put clean clothes on the man. How could God do that and still be just and righteous and have balanced scales? Somebody paying the price for his filthiness. How could God do that? We see it right here in our passage. Jesus, there at the cross, stood in that man's place, the righteous for the unrighteous. Yes, it was a thousand years later, but Jesus was paying the price of Joshua's sin. He was getting the justice that in that moment, Joshua deserved so that he could get clean clothes. And obviously, we know his clothes were talking about his soul. It was undeserved, all by grace. That was for Joshua. And my friends, that is for you. We are told, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have trusted in his blood. And if that is you, Satan has nothing to say against you. Nothing. He could stand there and talk all day long before the Lord about what you have done. As you trust in Jesus Christ, you are washed clean. And God could say to him, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. I know what Dan has done. I know what Angel has done. But I rebuke you because the Lord Jesus has stood in their place and taken everything that they deserve. You have no accusation to make against him or her anymore. Justice has been served. 
So what we need to see this morning is the Lord Jesus is standing there, hanging there in my place. Justice has been served for me. Now, I don't know what you're feeling this morning. So often our feelings get in the way. Truth needs to lead our feelings. We are told that we are clean. Now, we know that sin is inside of us still. It's waging a war in there, isn't it? But as we look to Jesus, trusting in his blood, we are told that we are forgiven sinners. That we don't have to walk around hanging our heads low anymore and in shame. That he is the lifter of my head as I look to Jesus Christ. I'm not looking at me. Now, if all I've got is to look at me, you better believe I'm hanging my head. But we look to him who took sin in my place, receiving the justice of God and making the accusations of Satan null and void. Do you believe that? The Lord wants us to believe that this morning. Paul told the Colossian church that Jesus nailed everything that Satan had against us to the tree. He disarmed the powers of darkness. That's what he had against you. Your sin and death. But in his resurrection, he removes that too, doesn't he? We don't have to be afraid anymore. And we don't have to carry our guilt anymore if we are looking to Christ. So maybe this morning you walked in here. I don't know what you walked in here thinking, feeling. Maybe you are experiencing some guilt right now. Are you looking at Jesus? Because if you are looking at him with eyes of faith, God says he will take your sin. And remove that burden from your back and roll it down the hill at Calvary. Look to him. God's justice was satisfied that day. And so Jesus took our sin. But that's not all that he did. He gave us his righteousness so Jesus removed the stain of sin and all that comes with it, but he gives to us what he has, what rightly belongs to him, righteousness, holiness, purity, goodness. Think of it like a bank account. You ever been overdrawn before? It's not a good feeling, is it? You're overdrawn, you don't have a job. No government assistance is coming your way. You're at the mercy of the bank. You've got nothing. Matter of fact, you've got negative. But then someone comes along and pays your debt. But that person doesn't just get you back to zero. That person deposits all of his assets, which are many, into your account. And then gives you access to what he has. At the cross, Jesus paid our sin debt, what we owed to God. 
our negative balance was paid off. But then he put his assets into our account too. And so by faith, you have been joined to Jesus in all that he is and all that he has. His righteousness before God, that becomes yours. Jesus is the firstborn and only son. All the inheritance, or the, the main lion's share of the inheritance we're taught in the Old Testament comes to him. He gets it all. And that one and only son of the father, he opens the way for God to have adopted children who deserve nothing. We're orphans out there wandering around on our own with no hope in the world. God says, come into my family. You belong to me. We had nothing. And through Jesus Christ, we are given everything everything and Jesus has earned it all for you to enjoy you did nothing for it he did everything and he opens the way into all that he has ever had that you get to share into so not only did we have our sin debt paid he didn't just get us back to zero we now have his righteousness so when God sees Lois he looks at Lois he doesn't just see sinful Lois anymore. What does he see? He sees Lois joined to his son, having all of the righteousness that Jesus Christ has. Isn't that something? It seems too good to be true, doesn't it, Lois? But it's not. It's the truth, and that's what Jesus Christ was doing there at the cross for me and you as our substitute. He is our substitute for our sin, but he also gives us what is his, his righteousness. What an exchange. What a deal. Look at verses 35 and 36. We see there that there are some bystanders who misunderstand they misunderstand what's going on here, and they fulfill more prophecy. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. What did Jesus just said at this moment? Why would they think that Elijah might come and take him from the cross. He had just said, Eloi or Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? So some of these people who were standing there think, did he just call Eli? Is he calling Elijah? Is he asking Elijah to come and help him in this moment? And if you know anything about the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, you know that he did not die. God swept him up in a whirlwind to heaven. And in Jesus' time, there was the idea that Elijah would return from time to time to protect righteous people or to save them in times of need. There was actually a legend in those days that Elijah had come and saved a godly Jew from execution. And so here these people are standing there at the foot of the cross, and they hear, Eli, Eli, and they think, wait, that's what they say, wait, let's keep this man alive. Let's give him something to drink. We might actually witness a miracle here. Elijah might come and save him. 
And when they did, they fulfilled what was said in Psalm 69. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. But was he revived? Did Elijah come and save him? No, our Savior came to die. And it was at this point that he cried out in a loud voice and breathed out his last breath. Look at verses 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And what happened? And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If you look over in Matthew, you'll see some other things that took place there. It sounds like a, a horror movie, actually. I read it to my kids a while back, just maybe for the effect of them knowing that when Jesus died, we read there that the graves opened up and the dead came out and preached the gospel. Can you imagine that? It's pretty shocking. This is pretty shocking, too, what Mark tells us. He says that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. That's why I like a curtain that you have on your bathtub or on your windows. This was a curtain that was 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide, made of very thick material. And it separated the, the holy place, the place where the priests would go in regularly and change out the showbread and make sure the lamps were lit and things like that. It separated that place where they entered regularly from what was called the holy of holies or the most holy place where the high priest would enter once a year and offer up a sacrifice for the sins of the people. It was in there that the Ark of the Covenant was and that the presence of God was. This was the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. On this particular day, as Jesus poured out his blood, not just some animal for Yom Kippur, not just one day out of the year, he wasn't just any animal. He wasn't just a lamb. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he died that day pouring out his blood on the cross. That giant curtain was torn from top to bottom. Makes me wonder, what did they think when they walked into the temple and saw that? We're not told. Why is it, do you think, that God did that, ripping that curtain in two? What was he saying? What was he doing in that moment? He is saying there are no more sacrifices. None. Never that he will acknowledge another sacrifice. This is the one for all, for all ways. This one was perfect. This one was enough for all sin. Access to the presence of God was no longer limited to that one day by a single priest. It was now available to all men through the death of that perfect lamb. Heaven 
the real holy of holies, has been opened up for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us that the Jewish temple, the tabernacle actually before the temple was made, but that that was the vision that was given to Moses up on the mountain. It was a vision that he had been given from heaven. So there was something about the tabernacle that Moses was shown that was a picture of what was actually in heaven. And on the top of that Ark of the Covenant, what was there? Do you remember? There were two angels, weren't there? Bowing down, worshiping the Lord. It was a picture of that. It was a picture of heaven, of what was actually taking place there. So the high priest would come in on that one day out of the year, put the blood of that sacrifice there on top of the ark. Jesus, at the cross was fulfilling once for all what those priests had done that time every year, offering up his blood and placing it not on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, but in the real Holy of Holies, offering up his blood to God. That is what was taking place. They put blood on the picture of heaven every year. Jesus offered his blood up in heaven, opening up the way for us to go in. The temple and the tabernacle were just pictures of that. And so when God tore that curtain in two, he is saying, you can come in. Not just the Levites, not just the priestly class, you can become in a sense, a priest of God and enter into the holy of holies. And you get to do it every day by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lastly, look with me at verse 39. We see there that a centurion makes a confession. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. At a crucifixion, there would have been four soldiers that attended the criminals with a centurion who led them. He was in charge of everything that took place. You know that the centurions had to have witnessed many deaths, whether on the battlefield, whether they're at... Uh, at a crucifixion, they had seen many, many men die. So here was Jesus. He was just another in a long line of dying and dead men. But this centurion saw something different in this dying man that caused him to say what he did on that particular day. He confessed Jesus to be the Son of God. In Mark's gospel, this title, the Son of God, is the most important of all. And if you remember, we've been going through this book for a long time, haven't we? It's been quite a while. And much of this story has been asking the question, who is this man? 
That's what the disciples ask. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man? Who could do things like this? Eventually, Peter answers that he is the Christ. He's the Messiah, right? Who is he? But this name right here, the Son of God, is what Mark has been aiming at all along. Nobody sees Jesus as the Son of God until he is dead on a cross. Why? Why now? After all this time, he lived his life, he worked his miracles, they have seen tremendous things. Why now, when he expires there on the cross, does somebody say that he is God's son? I want to read something to you that I think is insightful from a man named James Edwards. This is what he says about that moment. Until the centurion at the cross, no human, not even his disciples, had understood the meaning of the Son of God. This has not been by accident. Jesus has stifled speculation about his identity because all such announcements were premature. Remember throughout the story, he says, don't tell anybody about this. And, you know, we might think, well, he's just being modest. Jesus really wants you to go out there and tell everybody. No, no, he really meant it. Don't tell anybody. Yeah, I worked the miracle, but just go home and act like nothing happened. You know, it's not very, not very reasonable, but that's actually what he wanted to take place. He didn't want people making all these speculations about who he was. He says they're premature. Not until his death can anyone rightly understand who Jesus is and what Son of God means. As defined at the cross, the Son of God is he who gives his life as a ransom for many. The gospel of Mark reaches its climax in the confession of the centurion. Surely this man was the son of God. The cross is the supreme revelation of Jesus as God's son. The cross is also the birthplace of faith. For the centurion's confession is a saving confession of Jesus as God's son. The cross is the intersection where God meets humanity. Saving confession is not predicated on prior knowledge or proximity to Jesus or privilege. It is rather an act of faith as one looks on the dying Jesus. The centurion's confession is the saving proclamation of the church. The Son of God chooses not to exalt himself, but to follow a path of servanthood, indeed of substitutionary suffering and death, so that through the cross the world might acknowledge him to be the Son and with him share free and joyful access to the Father. He is saying, if you didn't catch all of that, that the cross is the place where Jesus fully reveals who he is, that you cannot understand him without the cross. It defines who he is and what he has come to do. So if you want to know who the Son of God is, where do you see him? Right here. Right here, dying. And that's where the centurion makes his confession, surely. Surely by looking at him there and seeing him dying in this way, he is the Son of God. And brothers and sisters, it is the place where God is calling us, calling you, to meet his Son and confess him like the centurion did. 
there are a good many people who want Jesus in their life. I asked Jesus in my life, but we don't know exactly always what they're asking him to be. Some people want him to be a guru, a shaman, a teacher, or some kind of self-help guide that just makes my life better. But Jesus has come to be no such thing. To know him. If you want to know him, who he truly is, you have to see him at the cross. And confess him to be God's son who came there that day to meet your greatest need. Are you needy? Are you needy? I was thinking this morning while I was sitting over here, I am self-sufficient, often self-important, often ruled by pride. I often don't think I need anything. But here at the cross, Jesus confronts me and says, oh, you poor sinner. You need mercy every, every day. You just can't see it. He is so patient. He is so kind. He is so good. He says, look at me. You needed me right here that day. I am not self-sufficient. I am Jesus-dependent, whether I know it or not. And I need to look at him right here, dying for a sinner like me. And then every day giving me the strength to live for the glory of his name, not my own. He came and he died in the most humbling, the most gruesome, the most terrifying way in your place and in mine. And it seems that Mark has written everything the way that he has to lead us to this place. It's like a herd of animals who are being brought to a gate. We're being funneled to the cross, to be confronted in this moment to see who he is, to beg of us the question, will you confess Jesus Christ? This Jesus, not whatever notion that you've had in your mind, this is the Son of God dying on a tree. He has made himself known in gruesome death so that all who can see him rightly there can have eternal life. And if this centurion can see this truth and confess this Savior, so can you, so can anyone. Mark wants us to look. God calls us to look and receive life. Through Jesus' death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the words you have put in this book. May they confront us. May they lead us to see Jesus Christ in all that he is. Or just scratch the surface this morning of what he is. We'll be learning about him and all he is forever. Just give us a glimpse. 
to see him dying for me. And may everyone here say the same thing. Surely this man is the Son of God dying for a sinner like me. We ask all this in the strong, dying, resurrected, powerful name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.